Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where we will explore, psychologically speaking, activating empathy and other reward-winning skills. My first guest is Dr. Adam Stern. He's a psychiatrist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Adam has written extensively about his experience as a physician, including in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and the American Journal of Psychiatry. He lives in Boston with his family, and he is the author, and I love this title, Committed Dispatches from the Psychiatrist in Training. Adam, a huge welcome. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Me too. I can't wait to just dive in here. How did you come to write this book, Committed? Committed is actually the sort of end point, or or at the moment, it's an end point of a a fairly long journey. Um, You know, I've been writing in various ways for as long as I can remember since I was a, a little child. And it wasn't until... 2018, that that writing actually took a different turn. And this is actually something that's not in my bio. So uh, it may shock you a little bit or your listeners a little bit. But in 2018, I was actually diagnosed with a life threatening condition, a a kidney cancer. (gasps) And I started to write about my experience because for the 10 years before that, I'd been a doctor primarily. And then suddenly I was a patient and a doctor at the same time. But you can see the same room from an entirely different perspective that way. And when you're also um, in in my mid-30s, as I am, it was as though an asteroid came down from space and and everyone was just sort of going about their lives. And, you know, it, there was an element of, but the whole world is uh, imploding. You know, the whole, you know, there's an asteroid. Don't you know about the asteroid? But the asteroid was really just for me and my family at that moment. Wow. And so I started writing because it was the best way for me to cope, the best way for me to process my experience. And there, I actually found that there was an element of raw self-disclosure that I found therapeutic for myself, but it also connected. It connected with audiences and readers in a way that some of my other more academic writing never had. And I was drawn to that. I thought that was so great that that I would write a piece and it would find a home in a lay publication, you know, out in the world. Uh, you listed, you know, um, the New York Times, for example, the Boston Globe. People would read these things. And I would see, because of social media, I would see 
you know, dozens, hundreds, thousands of people sort of chime in and, and say that that was like an experience that I had too. Or, oh, I disagree. I, for me, it was like this. And that kind of connection by, by way of the, the word, the written word was just so powerful for me. So I started writing, I kept writing. And eventually, I'm getting back to your original question, how <laughs> did I write committed about psychiatry? Eventually, one of these pieces got the attention of a literary agent who said, you know, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, only my entire life, let's do it. And then the hard part came where we realized that I couldn't write about the topic that I had been having such success with, uh, because that story has been written probably a dozen times, uh, the story of a physician who gets sick, the story of someone living and, and maybe dying with cancer. Those things are poignant, but they're not original. And my editor um, essentially said, you know, um, what's the story that you can tell that is unique to you and that only you can tell that will be interesting to a wide readership? And I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. We wrote back and forth proposals for months, back and forth. And eventually it hit me just one day, like, like, a, like, a, like another asteroid, actually. It just hit me. And it, it, I realized that the thing, the story, not the story of my life, but a story from my life that is most interesting is how did I go from a medical school graduate who pretty much knew nothing about psychiatry to becoming this psychiatrist, this sort of I don't know, people think of psychiatrists as a sort of cerebral, knowledgeable, you know, I think uh, a lot of people will have a certain image of a psychiatrist in their head, right? <laughs> Wait, can I pause you there? Because I just want to say that Adam is wearing a fine corduroy <laughs> blazer. And if any of you have ever visited a psychiatrist, psychiatrists kind of wear corduroy blazers. <laughs> <laughs> You're exactly right. You're, it's almost like I don't, it's the chicken and the egg. I don't know if I went into psychiatry because I love the blazers or, um, you know, now I wear blazers because I'm a psychiatrist. I think it's probably the latter. <laughs> but, you know, so so I thought that's the story I can tell. And it just so happens that within my life experience, there was a lot of drama in in our training program. I met my wife in the training program. There was a lot of ups and downs. There was a heaviness to it, the camaraderie we developed. And so I said, I can write a book that tells the story of how do you turn someone into a psychiatrist at Harvard, no less. But but in addition, I can make it interesting with the interpersonal stuff in there from from real life. And so that's what we did. Yeah. And it's a great read because you really learn about your journey and this notion of committed. I mean, people will say, well, did, did you, have you ever had to commit someone? Right. I mean, that's where it comes from committing someone to a psychiatric hospital, but the committed also comes in other forms, you know, the C word of commitment to another or to a cause or to a life. You've got it. That's exactly what I was going for is this duality of that word that is very much a double-edged sword. It's on, on the one hand, this wonderful thing to commit to someone, to commit to a profession. And on the other hand, this thing that I hate about the profession, which is that I've, I've had to commit, I don't know, hundreds of patients over the years, right? And it's, it's a mind-boggling, terrible thing that I, I think that a lot of people might have the sense that psychiatrists, it's no big deal to them or that they do it uh, maybe they, you know, some sadistic person would enjoy it or something like that. I hate, I never wanted to commit a person in my entire life. And it's only, I only do it because society has said, look, these, this is the role that psychiatrists are in. 
Uh, if you determine someone is a risk to themselves imminently or to someone else, you've got to do it for their own protection. And so you do it. And I never, I think part of the book is telling the journey of having to accept that. Yeah. And part of, part of the, the book is telling the aspect of it that I never quite did accept that. Uh, I still do it. I'll have to do it if uh, circumstances say so, but uh, I, I hate it. Uh, it's really something that I wish there was a different solution for. I want to ask you what called you to psychiatry versus psychology or internal medicine or plastic surgery, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's a great question because I have a hard time thinking of who I would tell to go into psychiatry. And the reason I say that, I think psychiatry is a wonderful field, but the reason I say that is that to get to psychiatry, you have to go to medical school and to get to medical school, you have to take all the pre-med organic chemistry and physics and all these, all these basic science classes. Uh, and it's a rare person that knows at the age of 18 that they want what they want to do, right? And so for me, I ended up in psychiatry in a sort of circuitous uh, route because, you know, I, I grew up in a medical family. My father's a cardiologist. My brother ended up uh, becoming a cardiologist as well, my older brother. And I decided somewhere in college that I liked psychology. I, was, I majored in psychology as an undergrad, but I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a medical doctor. So I did all, you know, jumped through all the hoops that it takes to get to medical school. And I went to school in, in Syracuse, New York at a wonderful state school. And then I realized in the midst of my med school training that the, the courses and the clinical rotations that I actually enjoyed the most were the brain and behavior and psychiatry rotations. And so I said, look, I've got hopefully a, a long career ahead of me. I've got to choose a, a path that even if it's a little bit stigmatized, I have to choose the one that I'll actually enjoy the most, that I will find most fulfilling, and that I'll be the best at. And so I, I did. I went into psychiatry, and and then the story of Committed starts, which is, okay, now you're a fresh graduate. You don't know anything really about psychiatry, but you're in charge of the locked psychiatry unit overnight. How do you do that? You know, and that's our, that's part of the the sort of pathos and the drama of the book is you take someone, imagine yourself at age 26 and and put them in that scenario. It's overwhelming and kind of amazing. Yeah, uh, but that's, that's how the system is. And then I also think about the parallel story of your life in, in, in 2018. You know, fast forward, you've gone from age 26 to you don't need to reveal your age, but to 2018 and here you are confronted with this monumental life challenge and navigating your own psyche while going through this. Yeah, the cancer diagnosis was something that is, you know, of course, I wouldn't wish it upon anyone. But and it's almost a cliche to say this. It is a cliche. I think I've heard it from lots of other people. But it opened up a, a strange appreciation for life in a way that is shared among a lot of patients living with serious illness, life-threatening illness, that is in a strange way, it's a gift. And of course, it's a terrible gift on the other end of it. It's again, that duality of this is a terrible thing to live with, a burden, and yet it it comes with some some value. And that value was that it allowed me to see life in a different way. 
You know, I, uh, you don't know, but I'm going to share with you <laughs> that I have an aunt who is 96 years old who had kidney cancer about, I would say, 35 years ago. And she lost one of her kidneys and she's never looked back. Yeah, I, I'm happy to hear that. 96, it's it's an amazing thing to even ponder, right? Right. Yeah. Actually, I grew up without any knowledge of this, but I learned after the diagnosis. I also have some remote family members in my family with kidney cancer. And so there is, even though I've had a genetic analysis, because I'm pretty young to get this kind of diagnosis, uh, the, the genetic analysis didn't show much, but there's clearly some sort of family predisposition. My cousin, or, you know, cousin once removed, who uh, recently did pass away from this, she did also manage to live like 30 years with the disease. Um, but at the same time, you know, the average life expectancy is is uh, much, much, much shorter for people with, with advanced disease. And at the very same time, I've learned to appreciate that the future for all of us, for, you know, none of us have a certain future. It's always uncertain, right? And I wouldn't have been able to predict the the road that I've been on over the last three years. And so I'm not trying to predict the road I'll be on for the next three. I'm just trying to do it as best I can. Oh, how beautifully said. Let's take a pause. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Dr. Adam Stern. We're talking about his book, Committed, Dispatches from a Psychiatrist in Training. To learn more about Adam and his work, please visit www.adamsternmd.com, on Twitter at Adam Philip Stern, and on Facebook at Adam Stern MD. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that actually is a promise. Before we take that pause, here's a reminder about the importance of home being a place that brings as much joy as possible. Home should be a hub for happiness and a backdrop for connection and memory making. My house reflects my personality, and these days it operates as a hybrid castle, sanctuary, office, gym, workshop, recording studio, boardroom, creativity laboratory, and base camp hangout. Home is where I get to express myself as a designer and host of good times. By the way, when I sit at my stunningly beautiful Joybird Retro Xavier desk, I feel like the powerful boss lady that I am. Make your home a happy haven. Get ready for Joybird's Buy More, Save More sale. Joybird is furniture that fits your style, offering crisp, modern furnishings and accessories for every space. Choose from more than 18,000 customizable options. Joybird offers complimentary design specialists who are standing by to help make your vision a reality. Ordering online has never been easier or more fun. From design to customer care, Joybird has you covered. Joybird Furniture stands by its quality and craftsmanship. If it's not everything you'd hope for, send it back within 90 days. Each piece is made with incredible care using responsibly sourced materials that are free of harmful chemicals. Joybird is also committed to a more sustainable future by partnering with groups like One Tree Planted to conserve and restore Earth's precious natural resources. Simply put, Joybird Furniture is made with top-notch stain and scratch-resistant fabrics and comes with a limited lifetime warranty. Joybird Furniture can handle anything your family throws at it, literally. Create a space that brings you joy with Joybird. Visit joybird.com slash happiness and get 30% off your purchase. That's 30% off at joybird.com slash happiness. Now let's take that quick pause. We'll be right back. 
To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. We're back talking with Dr. Adam Stern. We're psychologically speaking, activating empathy and other reward-winning skills. Let's get back to the conversation. In the prior segment, we were talking about Adam's journey to becoming a psychiatrist. We were also talking about his very human journey when a doctor becomes a patient. And Adam, you so eloquently shared about, you know, meeting your life and its challenges where it's at in the moment and doing the best. I'm going to turn it over to you because I think a lot of us were, our mouths dropped open (laughs) when you shared. (laughs) I can appreciate that for sure. One of the ways that I approach my life these days is by focusing on shorter, shorter terms, right? So even when I'm not in the moment, I might still be thinking in three month increments because that's just about how often I get scanned. And every scan, my last scans were wonderful. They were the best I've had since diagnosis. So so that's a really wonderful thing. And yet at the same time, my next scan may be wonderful and it may not be. And I, I have no way to predict that. So what I'm going to do is focus on living as best I can, working, doing the things that I love, spending time with my family, everything that I can to make those three months as full and fulfilling as I can. And, you know, one of those things I mentioned was work, right? And one of the passions that have have come out of this diagnosis is that now at work, I used to, frankly, I used to do sort of what was asked of me. And I realized when the diagnosis hit, I could actually focus more on the parts of my job that I love and uh, really sort of carve out a career that is aligned with what I want to spend my time doing. And part of that is is helping trainees, right? So one of the reasons that I stayed on at Harvard Medical School is to train the next generation because I know what it's like to for them to go through this experience and I know how difficult it can be emotionally. And now I have this skill set as a psychiatrist to help them get back on the path that they want to be on, especially when they falter. So that's part of one of the gifts that this diagnosis has left me with. And this, in my view, is noble work because our brains are an invisible landscape, right? When, when, when dealing with human beings to train a doctor to be able to not only treat, but deal with their patients with deep humanity and humility and heart is big. That is part of the the medicine. Absolutely. It is. And, you know, you you hit on something there that mental health, that uh, the mind, these are sort of invisible concepts that we have to conceptualize, that we understand differently at different times in our life, at different moments in history, right? So psychiatry as a field is making progress. Neuroscience is making enormous progress toward understanding how the brain works and then also how it malfunctions. Uh, And so, I do. I think you're right that that uh, it, I, I do think that 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 it's a noble sort of profession, but it's also a sort of I would say it's a unique little 
corner of medicine psychiatry is and it also has a venn diagram in common with a lot of other aspects of psychology of social work of all kinds of different sort of areas of coaching of all all these areas where you're trying to help people live a ver- the best version of the, their lives that they want to live that are aligned with their values but this is coming from the voice you of a modern psychiatrist, right? Many of us have the view of psychiatry as a barbaric profession, right? You know, we think back to some of the movies that we might have seen, you know, I don't know what I'm, what other movies one, are out there. One, but... one, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yes. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, the barbarism of the profession and where it has evolved. And yet there are some very old fashioned treatments that are still in use today, like ECT. That's exactly right. ECT, it's, it pains me to say that ECT remains one of the most powerful treatments we have for treatment refractory depression, you know, catatonic or acute suicidal kind of depression, mood disorders that don't respond to medications. ECT still, it's been around for 80 some odd years and we do a different version of it. Hopefully it's more humane, more tolerable, but it's still a heavy duty treatment. So one of the things that I'm interested in is uh, focusing on more non-invasive approaches to brain stimulation. There's something called transcranial magnetic stimulation that I focus on in my academic career. This is what we're trying to do is get the positive effect of, you know, the tools that we have without the detrimental, right? So we're, we're not there yet. Our efficacy is still lingering in the 50, 60% range for most patients with really severe treatment refractory depression, but it is much more tolerable. And, and I would say humane is, is, a, is a tough word because I think you can do ECT in a very humane way, but it also has the potential for really inhumane you know, aspects. And so I want to sort of pay tribute to that and, and be, acknowledge that. I have uh, experienced uh, two people in my life that have had ECT. One was a relative and one was a friend. Well, is they're both, they're both alive. One was given too much and it had some very difficult long-term side effects. The other said that it saved his life and like thinks it's the golden, golden treatment. You got it. That's exactly the, again, I feel like this concept of uh, duality um, or like the dialectic, I feel like the, that's come up three times already in our brief conversation, yes. but it's absolutely true. It's it's both, it saves lives and it is a, a tool, a dangerous tool, you know, that needs to be taken with respect and offered with uh, proper, you know, precautions and uh, eyes wide open, yeah. you know, ever, and knowing exactly what you're signing up for. And when we talk about, you know, the state of psychiatry today and the tools available to you as a, a physician, diagnostician, what can you say? I mean, there's the hopefulness of neuroscience and what we're learning about the brain. There's TMS, which, you know, is being used more and more and it's non-invasive, like you say, but you have this whole host of drugs available and how much of it is the balance between you know lifestyle intervention psychopharmacology and then bigger treatments that's a really interesting question because you're getting at a few different things there so the first first there's what do we do in the clinic what do we do when a new patient comes in and says i have these symptoms right and that is still 
psychiatry often being practiced in the way that it was 20 or 30 years ago. You listen to the patient, you try to identify, do they fit a pattern of a kind of disorder that I can treat, that I know how to treat? Uh, and then you offer the best tra treatment you can. Ideally, you're aligned with the patient. And that's a very different thing than also what you sort of touched on, which is, you know, like the, the neuroscientific understanding of how the brain works and malfunctions, that's coming along really fast. And so fMRI studies, lesion analysis, network analysis of the of the brain and how it, let's say, malfunctions in very specific disorders, right? So what does a brain look like in a manic state? What does it look like in a state where it's intoxicated on, on a either a medication or a drug, right? Yeah. What does it look like when someone's euphoric? What does it look like when they're suicidal? These are things that we're starting to just... Uh, you know, the brain is starting to reveal its secrets through these new techniques that we have. But but there's such a chasm between where we are in the clinic and what we're starting to understand academically. Well, it's exciting to know that we we can see what a brain looks like when it's in euphoria and then work to create other scenarios that create that same euphoria without the substance. That's pretty cool. Like, right. Because we all yeah. want that state of euphoria. We're all seeking it. We crave it. <laughs> right. So you're, I think you're also definitely sort of, at least you're, you're reminding me of this recent trend within psychiatry that we could probably talk an, for an entire hour about or, or more. And we're going to, <laughs> you and I are going to hang out. <laughs> There's this recent trend where things that have been around for a long time, things like ketamine, yeah. Uh, which is used as an anesthetic. Well, you know, it was sort of found like a lot of things discovered in hindsight that it had this rapid antidepressant effect, rapid anti-suicide effect. And so now it's being, now it's, you know, uh, uh, the, there's a corporation uh, called Janssen that developed this nasal spray version of ketamine. It's It's just one part of the ketamine molecule. And it's a nasal spray, and it's being offered as this FDA-approved treatment. But ketamine's been around for decades, you know. And so uh, that's one one example. Another, they're popping up all around the country are these research centers devoted towards psychedelic medications, yeah. right? Not even medications. The study of magic mushrooms, essentially. Yeah, the ayahuasca. And then we, yep. had, we had a guy on the show a couple of years ago. He was studying the Sonoran frog. And oh, I can't remember the guy's name. He was a doctor from Mexico and the effects on the, the venom from the frog was psychedelic in some way that was uh, combative of depression. Yeah. Nature is an amazing, I mean, we will never do better than, than mother nature in terms of developing, inventing, thinking of new approaches, right. To uh, adapt. Nature is full of those kinds of things. We haven't been very good historically at tapping into that to our benefit, but I think that's changing. You know, I think the tide is turning toward this uh, openness toward taking something that's been around and that everybody knows has psychoactive effects and actually seeing if we can harness it and yeah. use it to help people. And then you know, I want to move on to something else, but I just want to circle back to the lifestyle interventions and recent research about sort of generic depression and the efficacy of, you know, diet, exercise and sleep versus or in consort with antidepressants and other medications. 
I've heard it uh, said that if exercise were a drug, every doctor would prescribe it, right? It's yeah. It, it, <laughs> it, it, the benefits of getting your heart rate up and actually having some physical uh, exertion on a nearly daily basis, you know, is is really dramatic. Better than most drugs that I prescribe, for example. Being able to actually achieve that is a very difficult thing, particularly when someone is in, let's say, a depressed state. Uh, yeah. When the covers are over the head and one yeah. is not getting out of bed, it, right. it's pretty hard to move somebody from that place. I see the place for the medications to help support, you know, jumpstarting the mojo a little bit. And on the nutritional side, that's another area that I feel like, gosh, it's untapped. We need to better understand nutrition and the things that we put in our body, how they're affecting us. I wish we had a bet. I wish psychiatrists better understood it. So we could say, hey, this is how you should actually approach your your daily intake of food. You know, this this essential part of your life that we just sort of go on a whim, you know, that we that most of us are just sort of like uh, out in the breeze going with whatever we we feel like or we think might be good. Yeah. Well, it's like if you're not maintaining a, a healthy diet, right, if, if your main food sources are sugar, salt and white flour, no wonder you might be depressed. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a I you know and this is this is an area where as a physician I have a a bit of a internally I have a bit of a hard time because I'm not a model of uh, excellence with nutrition you know by any stretch and I wish I were I wish I I wish I exercised every night or every morning and I wish I ate really well but you know life is hard yeah. and so I, I that's, <laughs> that's another true. area where I appreciate you know that you know I can tell someone what you know, behavioral activation will be good for your depression. You should do this. You should get out of the house and, and go for a walk every day as a starting point out in the fresh air. Those are good things for people's mental health, generally speaking. I can say that at the same time, realize like, oh, I just spent all of yesterday inside without doing that, you know, myself. So that's one of those, that's another one of those dichotomies, you know, of, of uh, do as I say, not as I do yeah. kind of thing. Well, it's the dilemma of a, a busy medical doctor, right? You know, you're out saving lives and sometimes your own self-care suffers as a result, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that's that's true. And I, I, I hope that comes across in the book, Committed, where, you know, it really tells the story of these residents, myself included at the time, who almost practically live in the hospital, right? Under the fluorescent lights with the hospital food. And they're only really seeing each other, the same group of like 15, you know, they're young adults, but I was about to call us kids, you know, at the time. And imagine all the lifestyle things we've just been talking about. And imagine how, if you're going to prescribe the opposite, it would basically yeah. be a residency. It would be, you know, okay, go and live in this building with artificial light, uh, for four years, only see these these handful of people, and um, you know, eat the food that's available that day in the cafeteria, and learn about the human condition. I mean, you know, right. when, when, you know, <laughs> I, I think about what you're describing. My eyes are closed, and I'm thinking about you know, young residents and eating pizza at four o'clock in the morning, and and you know, being called to manage a crisis in the middle of the night, and what that does for your own health and well being, and then just being a young adult, like not having that kind of experience, and you are thrown into it, and you've got to you've got to figure it out fast. Because that's somebody else's life. 
Absolutely. And then, you know, there's this element that young doctors face where you are in a, there's a, there's a phrase in my line of work about holding with the patient, meaning emotionally holding whatever they're carrying. And that comes with a price. I think, I, I think in the book somewhere, I describe it as sort of a reflective window where some of the emotion that you're bathing in uh, passes through and, and some of it reflects back to you, you know? And so uh, patients will, will get the reflection and, and some of it will land in you and you, you carry that home. You think about it. You can't sleep that night. These things are definitely part of sort of like the, the cost of, you know, being in this very rich, wonderful profession, there's a cost. And, and I think that it's never more evident than during the training phase. Dr. Adam Stern, please come back and hang out with me. We have so much more to talk about, about you, your story, about committed dispatches from a psychiatrist in training, and just about the state of psychiatry and mental health, you know, in the world we're living in today. I want to send our listeners over to adamsternmd.com on Twitter at Adam Philip Stern and on Instagram, Adam Stern MD. Please come back. Say you I will. Would lo- I would love to. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Here comes that quick break. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. And we're back. Psychologically speaking, activating empathy and other reward winning skills. My next guest is Professor Coulter Ray, who is a professor and communication scientist at Louisiana State University, whose research focuses on how people support loved ones who have been diagnosed with cancer. His work explores reasons why some attempts to be supportive are viewed negatively by cancer patients and also investigates instances when people choose not to communicate with those they know with cancer and why they make that decision. Coulter is also an expert trainer with the organization Empathy Bootcamp, teaching soft skills such as practicing empathy to business and educational leaders. And Coulter is in the house. Hi, Coulter. Hey, how are you? I am excellent. How about yourself? And I mean that as a real question. (laughs) I'm doing really well. Yeah, I'm having a really good week. And so no complaints on this end. How did you get into studying this subject matter, because it's kind of a a very specific window into the communication world. Yeah. I remember growing up, whenever my friends would go through something difficult, I always wish I could just say like the perfect thing to, to make it better. And, uh, you know, I realized as I got older that that's not always possible, obviously, because of the types of things that people go through. There's no, uh, quote unquote magic bullet or perfect thing you can always say, But I also noticed along the way, and as I thought of this as I grew up, that a lot of people would say the exact wrong thing. Or I noticed whenever I was going through difficult things, I sometimes wouldn't hear at all from people who I expected to reach out to me. And these were all perplexing instances that uh, caught my attention. So whenever I uh, decided to become a, um, a communication researcher and I wanted to, you know, figure out what I wanted to dedicate my life towards, uh, researching, 
uh, that's the topic that, that came up. And in, on top of that, it's also looking at it specifically after a cancer diagnosis. Uh, because unfortunately, uh, a lot of people who are close to me in my life uh, have been diagnosed with cancer, uh, and most are cancer survivors. Um, so it's something that gives me an opportunity to research uh, something that is important, uh, that is perplexing, and that unfortunately touches most of us at some point in our life. Many of us will either be diagnosed with cancer or certainly will know someone who we love and care about who will be diagnosed at some point. I want to touch upon something that you just mentioned about when we go through things, how we often find that the people we thought would be there are the ones that we don't hear from or might even run the other way. That's a phenomenon that I've also experienced in my life. And I'm wondering about that. What is it? <laughs> what is that a, thing? Yeah, it's a it's a variety of reasons. Cowardice uh, thing. That's, that's the exact <laughs> You know, that's the exact thing I was wondering, too. And uh, so it started off with simply uh, doing some research where we, we contacted hundreds of individuals who knew someone with cancer who chose not to reach out to provide emotional support to that person. So, you know, messages of love, caring, empathy, concern. And, you know, I kind of was not exactly sure what I would hear back. There were some of the ones some of the responses were the obvious things you would expect, like, ooh, I don't know what to say. Even if I did know what to say, I wouldn't know how to say it. Other people would say, well, this is my coworker, and we don't really talk about deep things. We just talk about, you know, um, sports and stuff around the water cooler. We don't talk about personal health. But then there were some really fascinating answers, things that alluded to relational transgressions in the past. So I will never forget this one uh, participant uh, who said, you know, I um, – I found out my mom has terminal cancer, but I'm not going to be there for her because whenever I was a teenager, she abandoned me for her new, her new boyfriend. And just because she has cancer now, it doesn't mean I have to love her. And that Ouch. was really, um, really caught me off guard. You know, that's uh, so in general, people have a, a variety of reasons, oftentimes personal and, you know, related to the specific relationship with the person with cancer uh, as a reason for not reaching out. Uh, sometimes it is they don't know what to say. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, something that there's still a grudge that they're still holding against that person. It's a variety of reasons. And is it specific to cancer or is it really in, in general that when people we know go through hard times, some people feel so uncomfortable, they take a hike? Is it just a... It is in general. Yeah. It's a, I, think, yeah. I, I think we all have experienced that. I can, I, you can probably think of a time when you went through a breakup or you switched careers or something that was, you know, stressful. And there was probably at least one person on your list of, you know, expected supporters who didn't reach out. So I think I think a lot of people are just scared. They don't know what to say uh, or they're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing and make it worse. A lot of people were afraid of, you know, honestly, a lot of people talked about being afraid of breaking down and losing control of their own emotions. And now they're thinking, great. Now I'm a burden to this person who's going through this thing and that person going through their stressful life situation is now trying to comfort me as I fall apart. So there's, you know, there's quite a few reasons why people might not reach out. Is it, could it be because they think it's sticky? Like that the bad news is going to stick and somehow become their bad news or their reversal of fortune? I don't know. I don't, I, I don't think I've come across that in any of the interviews or any of the uh, research I've done, I think it's more that, I think it's just more that people 
are too afraid to to take a shot at at trying to be a good supporter. And the way that I the the analogy or the metaphor that I use to really describe it is, you know, saying the wrong thing and saying nothing at all when you were expected to be there is kind of like the difference between uh, someone in baseball striking out swinging versus striking out looking. You know, you yeah. might as well at least uh, take a show swing up. at it, take a shot, <laughs> to show and, up and show up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because guess what? If you if you say the wrong thing, uh, it can be just as bad as if you had said nothing at all and vice versa. I'm thinking about a friend of mine and I have two stories with this friend. One, the first part of the story is that he had a medical diagnosis, which I'll get into in a minute. But how he set up sharing it with the people closest to him is he asked to meet with each of us privately. And in my case, it was in a park near our office. We were friends through work. And I saw him sitting in a, like one of those foldable lounge chairs, you know, with the nylon webbing. And he had two of them, yeah, like, like yeah. a therapy session. He was a therapist by the way. <laughs> and I'm <Okay>. like, <laughs> oh no, this can't be good. Like, cause it looked like super staged, you know? And he's like, you right. know, come, come and sit down. And he goes, I have something to tell you. And he just said, I have cancer. <laughs> yeah. And he said, I just wanted to tell you in a, in a place where like we could be free about it. And I'm like, free about it. Like we're sitting in a park where I feel like I'm going to lose my um, composure, but okay, free about it. And I, and my first response was, I'm so sorry. Like, I don't know what else to say. And he goes, that's, that's okay. I'm sorry too. And that, that was sort of a really real moment, you know? Yeah. If you had not told me that your friend was a therapist, just based on what you said that they said, I would guess that your friend was a therapist. It seemed like uh, <laughs> it seemed like they may have had a, a pretty good grasp of having these types of conversations. And I'm sure that they've had, you know, many tough conversations with their own clients. Yes. Uh, but you, you did the right thing by simply saying, I'm sorry. That's a great starting point if you don't know what to say, you know. In uh, in my work with Empathy Bootcamp, you know, some of the things that we talk about are what are the actual things that you can say? Like, what are the uh, phrases or questions you can have uh, at the ready for whenever you are potentially caught off guard by by bad news? And one of them is just to simply say, I'm so sorry to hear you're going through this. I yeah. think a lot of people forget to say that. Um, beyond that, though, it's things like, um, well, one of the, one of the better pieces of advice I can give is whenever you are dealing with something like a cancer diagnosis, if you're going to be supporting the person, it's it's probably pretty, uh, especially if you really know the person, you're probably going to have to support them over the course of many months as they go through the diagnosis, the uh, the treatments, and you know everything else, and even into survivorship. There's so many uh, health and mental health and identity issues that can come up, so it's not like a one-off or a one-time thing. So you know there's a big difference in asking someone how are you doing. Versus how are you doing today? And just adding that last word at the end of that question can actually really elicit a different response. If you ask someone who's going through something difficult, uh, that's, you know, a prolonged experience, how are you doing? They oftentimes will kind of shrug it off and say, well, you know, like things are fine. But if you ask, how are you doing today? You're more likely to get a detailed and I think honest, a more honest answer. Uh, it gives them permission or space to say, you know, today's been a pretty bad day inside of an otherwise pretty good week or today's been a pretty good day, yeah. but this has been a tough month. 
And so it just opens up the conversational space a little better just to add that that one word and to ask, how are you doing today instead of just how are things going? I like that. I think that's really good advice. And in, in this friend's case, he's doing just great. I mean, many years have good. passed and he's doing fine and he's well into survivorship and thrivership. But another story about this same friend, oh God, he's going to kill me if he can figure out <laughs> that it's him I'm talking about. But he was going through a breakup, somebody that he was with for a couple of decades. And he again asked for a coffee meeting outside at a cafe. And he wanted to tell me that he was breaking up with this woman or this woman had broken up with him. And he burst into tears because I never even knew that he was struggling in his relationship because he never opened himself up enough to be seen in that way. And yeah. I just, I said to him that I felt so sorry once again for the stress that he was going through and the anguish and the sadness and that I had wished that I had known sooner so I could have been a better friend. And then he really started to cry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's tricky because like, the type of thing that you can say that can actually potentially backfire, right? Like if that person for, again, if your friend is a therapist, then they're probably, probably pretty well adjusted. Uh, but eh, hopefully, no, uh, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, that's the type of thing that if someone is really on edge, uh, they might take offense to that or they might even, you know, see it as like, well, you know, this isn't about your, you know, I, I don't need uh, criticism of, how I've shared things in the past uh, or not, what I need is just for you to be present. And I'm not saying that, you know, again, a lot of this is going to be based on your subjective personal relationship yes, with this person. Yes. But that's the type of thing that I can think of some people in my life, and you probably think of people in your life too, who are maybe just a little bit more like uh, on edge or maybe a little bit more on that wavelength of just, I don't know, where something like that could land uh, differently with them. I, I do see what you're saying. I mean, in this case, I felt comfortable and confident enough in the relationship that I could say something like that because I really care about this person as a friend. So yeah. I, I meant it to emphasize how much I really care. And he took it yeah. that way, fortunately. We need to take a break. And when we come back, I want to continue the conversation about like how to show up as a human, because really, I think that's what we're talking about, right? Like how we can be there for one another through difficult times, and even if we don't know what to say. My guest today is Coulter Ray. You can learn more about Coulter at CoulterRay.com. On Instagram, you can find him at Coulter Ray. And let me spell it out for you. That's C-O-L-T-E-R-R-A-Y. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back and we'll get back at it. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more.
we're back, continuing the conversation with Professor Coulter Ray. We're talking about psychologically speaking, activating empathy and other reward-winning skills. Let's get back to it. So, Coulter, prior to the break in the first segment, we were talking about, you know, how to show up for somebody when they are going through something or when they deliver hard news about themselves or their lives, which got me thinking about really what we're doing here is talking about how to show up and be a better human, you know, like skills, ways that we can do that. And I think we all could use help in that way. Like none of us shows up perfectly 100% of the time. You know, so there's a, this is a type of topic that you know, obviously, I've dedicated my life towards researching, uh, and it's just because there's so many facets and complexities to it that you can investigate. And when I when I teach this to my own students, oftentimes one of the first questions I get is kind of this idea of like, well, what what is it we should say to somebody whenever they suddenly spring upon us that they are going through a divorce or that you know they've had a relative pass away or or whatever it might be, and it's such an interesting question if you really break that down because there's this assumption that it's about saying the right thing. And that in and of itself alludes to maybe the bigger problem, which is it might not be about saying the exact right thing so much as it is about being present yeah. and showing up and being a good listener. You know, that is the other side of the of the equation when it comes to good communication. So many people focus on what do I say? What do I do? Instead of realizing that uh, saying nothing at all might be and being a good listener might be the more important thing during these particularly heavy conversations that you have with someone. And it's interesting that you say that because when I think about events in my lifetime where people I thought would show up ran the other way, and then there was that person that I never really gave the credit to of having that kind of strength of heart and integrity that did show up. And what it did for me, you know, like at how good it made me feel. And it made me really have a different understanding of what showing up means and what friendship and connection are all about. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, diving into your experience, do you think that's because, um, they exceeded your expectations? So it caught you off guard in a positive way. I didn't have the expectation. Maybe that's part of the equation, but then when they did show up and they showed up in such an earnest way, that not only did it strengthen the friendship, but it is one of the strongest friendships that I have today. And I'm, this event happened many, many years ago. And, and I always like think about that. Like it really was an imprint. And it was somebody who was a very quiet friend that turned into probably one of the loudest, most supportive. That's great. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's I think that's one of the things that happens in our life whenever we go through these difficult times is you get a you can get a good sense of who really cares and who is going to be there for you. And, you know, sometimes it is that person that you maybe don't have the closest connection to at the time or who you wouldn't expect to to reach out. And so maybe they're not on their radar. And so, you know, then anything that they do is, you know, going to exceed the uh, expectation because you didn't really have any for them. And so I think the lesson there is if you're thinking about what you can do to support other people as they go through a cancer diagnosis or whatever it might be, is to think about when you've gone through tough times, who are the people that created an indelible mark on your life because of their actions or of the things that they said or what they did? And can you mimic that? Yes. I was, I was just thinking that as you're talking, like, yes. And model that, do that, (laughs) do that thing, do that thing that Debbie did. (laughs) (laughs) 
Let's talk about sort of the scorecard of human behavior. (laughs) Do do people really keep, you know, a scorecard? Yes. Yes and no. I think it really depends on the person uh, on an individual by individual basis. Uh, This is actually something that I will be diving into in my own research, trying to figure out why people, certain people keep a a closer eye on that scorecard than others. And, you know, just for fun, in, in the past few semesters uh, in my classes, I have asked my students, uh, essentially, you know, to what extent they keep track of who shows up and who doesn't. And or are they just appreciative of all the efforts of people or, you know, regardless if they help or do something? You know, is it really how closely are they keeping score? And I really am finding a pretty wide variety. I can think of several people in my life who you know, if they were going through something pretty uh, difficult, if you do anything, if you just reach out and say, hey, I'm thinking about you, you know, that's great. They're appreciative of it. But I can also think of other people in my life who definitely can recall specific instances of people not showing up for them or of doing something that was not helpful or saying something that ended up being hurtful instead of helpful. So I'm curious what it is maybe on a personality level or uh, based on a person's, you know, prior life experiences that makes some people more attuned to the scorecard compared to others. Mm. And I wonder if you were to sort of dive deeper into that, are the ones that hold the scorecard, are they more or less happier than their less scorekeeping counterparts? You know? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say, I don't know. <laughs> well, we have to come back learned, and when you finish your research, you have to come back and we have to talk about this yeah, because this is important. One thing that I've learned <laughs> along the way of, uh, of being a communication researcher now for you know almost a decade is that uh, there are times in your life when you just have to say, that's a great question and I do not know the answer. But that's great because it's just uh, it just fuels my motivation to to continue to dive into these things and to to investigate. And I, I, the reason I say I don't know is because I could see someone who is generally appreciative of all the support that they get, obviously being quite satisfied with the support they're getting. But I could also see people who keep that scorecard being uh, really satisfied than whenever their expectations are met, but maybe way less satisfied whenever they aren't met. So maybe that person who's appreciative of everything is kind of even keeled and has a slightly above average satisfaction level. But for the people who keep that close scorecard of who's done what, uh, maybe when things are going great, they're going really, really well. And whenever things aren't Uh, then they're really dissatisfied. But those are things that I would need to answer empirically and do some more data collection and some fun statistical analyses and all that good stuff. Well, Dr. Ray, you'll have to come back and talk to us us about this because it's it's interesting (laughs) to me because I would think that those who have a high level of appreciation of everything, even the difficult things, you know, you know, stories, you hear stories, at least I've been doing the show for a long time, that we've had cancer survivors come on the show and talk about what cancer has taught them, how it was the best, worst thing that ever happened to them. Those sure. people are doing better than their counterparts who don't see the opportunity for growth and transformation from those difficulties. Yeah. And I think if we would have had this conversation even a week later, I could have given you a better answer. I have <laughs> fresh, fresh data that I just collected from about a thousand U.S. adults who are representative of the of the U.S. adult population. And one of the things that I am literally going to look at probably in the next day or two is whether or not the tendency to play into interpersonal victimhood and to see oneself as a victim uh, correlates with 
uh, that person's global physical health just in general are they are they perceiving themselves as healthier and that's something that I'm you know that I wish I could have gotten to right before this interview so yeah I guess I will have to come you back. will have to come back no there's <laughs> so much you know. more to talk about because this to me this is a very very juicy subject and we're almost out of time and I wanted to close with one more point about you know working on ourselves, going back to that being a better human and how yeah. we bolster our own empathy, how we show up for ourselves and how that mirrors how we show up for others and vice versa, right? Are we, if we don't have a lot of people around us who are showing up well, is it some reflection on the way that we're showing up? It could be. I, you know, I'm a big believer that in general, you get out of relationships, what you put into relationships. So the other side of that is that we know from prior research on social support that in general, the more direct you are in terms of what your needs are, the more satisfied you'll be with the support you're going to get. So the question becomes then, is it this, uh, I think, is the, is the true ultimate experience to be going through something difficult, not have to ask for support and have someone come out of the blue and do just the right thing? Uh, is that actually better than, you know, <laughs> taking the time to, you know, be direct, have the conversation, say, here's what I need for you to do to help support me and then to get that uh, support? You know, you're either way or you would hopefully be getting the support you need. But is one actually better than the other? Uh, so, you know, I, it could be a reflection of if you're not getting the support you need, it could be that you just haven't been direct enough about expressing your needs or it could be that. Uh, over the years, you have not been a good supporter yourself, and maybe it's time to make amends and to uh, and to recognize that and have some uh, deep conversations with people in your life. This is a perfect spot to hit pause, and I honestly want to say pause because I think this is a conversation that needs to continue when Dr. Coulter Ray gets the rest of his data <laughs> analyzed. <laughs> yeah. And, and he'll come back and and hang out more. To learn more about Dr. Coulter Ray, please visit CoulterRay.com. You can find him on Instagram at Coulter Ray, and that's C-O-L-T-E-R-R-A-Y. Coulter, this is TB Continued. Great. It's been a pleasure <laughs> so far, and I can't wait for round two. Me too. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guests, Dr. Adam Stern and Professor Coulter Ray, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please remember to go out and rock your day and to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere. From the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio. KBUURadioMalibu.net and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.